Thank you so much. It's so good to be reminded of the character of God. And um, just, I, w- I want to let you know that what, what you just witnessed here with Dwight doing the handoff to the rest of the team, that, uh, that's not normal. Uh, it's right. It's mature. It's godly. It displays character, but it's, it's not typical. I've had an opportunity to watch transitions unfold in different churches and different environments and different eras, even different countries. And um, don't don't underestimate the power of what just happened there, and don't take that for granted. Uh, yeah, please. Thank you, man. I was telling the choir backstage that Dwight was one of the first faces that virtually welcomed us to Central. Kelly is, is, uh, turned to me, she says, is it crazy that we accepted a job to a church that we've never physically been to? And I go, probably, but it's okay because we saw Dwight online and that's a good dude. Like you could just, you just feel the joy and uh, the presence of God and the peace and just the, the even keeled steady nature of, of that man and his heart for God. So uh, let's continue to celebrate him and his new chapter and be grateful for the gifts that God has given to a healthy, unified culture here in this place. We're going to be opening the scriptures in just a moment. We're looking at the book of Acts, chapter 27. So if you want a hard copy of the Bible, please uh, do me a favor, go ahead and raise your hand. The team is coming down. They'd be more than happy to hand you one. If you want to read along, we're going to put the verses up on the screens. If you brought your own hard copy or if you'd like to follow along on your phone, you can do that as well. If you have ever spent any time traveling via airplane, uh, you understand the concept of Turbulence. Now, there are a couple different kinds of turbulence. There's the minor turbulence where you don't even need to catch the drink on your tray because we're just wobbling a little bit. And then there's very intense, like kind of level five turbulence where the overhead compartments are flying open, baggage is falling out, panels are falling out of the sky, and you've got you know, kind of the oxygen masks drop. That, that's, that's a big deal. And when I first start to experience turbulence, I wait for that moment where the captain will get on the speaker and say, folks, We've hit some rough pockets of air. It's going to take about 10 to 15 minutes and we'll get through it. That's reassuring, right? It makes it sound like somebody understands that this is happening. They have a plan to get through it. And they've got a timeline uh, by which this should expire. And for when I start to experience turbulence and to when that turbulence is over, when we're safe on the other side, that's, that's the space between. Now... If the captain says 15 minutes and we get to 17 minutes and we're still experiencing turbulence, I have a thing that I do, and that's I look for the closest flight attendant to determine how alarmed I should be. And if the, if the woman nearest to me is continuing to pour Diet Cokes and coffee, I'm like, we're fine. There's nothing to worry about. If, on the other hand, the flight attendant nearest to me jumps into the jump seat, straps himself in, curls into the fetal position, and starts to weep, I know something has gone horribly wrong. Turbulence is unnerving because it reminds us of how small we are. It's like any kind of natural storm phenomenon. It reminds me that as much as I like to give myself and others the illusion that I am under control, that I'm in control, I'm not. I did a memorial service a few months ago for a woman named Mildred Latimer. She grew up in Virginia. Her granddaughter did her eulogy and she said, Grandma used to say that the worst part of a tornado is that when it's over, everything ends up in trees. Things that belong on the ground are up in a tree. It's a reminder to us of the sheer force of nature and how little we bring to bear against it when a storm kicks into high gear. Storms remind us of our smallness. They remind us of our humility. They remind us of our powerlessness. And storms or crises in our lives come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and often without warning. Some of us are facing a financial storm right now. Maybe we're facing a personal bankruptcy or there's been a a problem at work, a major deal that we were banking on for commission that didn't come through. 
Or maybe you're facing a personal crisis, a relational crisis. Somebody that you poured a lot of time and energy and love into has abandoned or betrayed you and you feel like just the bottom has fallen out of your life. Maybe you're facing a spiritual crisis. You're not sensing the presence of God in a way that you used to and you're starting to get kind of overwhelmed by by this influx of fear or doubt. I I don't know what your crisis is, but my guess is that if your life is at all like mine, uh, you find yourself coming out of one in the middle of one or you're kind of seeing one that's on the horizon. And today we're gonna talk about how do you you navigate a crisis in a God-honoring way? How do we recognize that when a crisis starts to when the time the crisis gets over, there's something that God is doing. There's something that God wants to reveal. There's something that God wants to do in us and through us in the middle. How do we find out what that is? How do we fully lean into that so that we get everything out of that experience that God intended for us? So Paul, the apostle Paul, is no stranger to crisis. And today we look at his space between when his storm strikes and when he finally gets to a point of calm. Paul has spent the majority of his ministry life telling people in the Eastern Mediterranean Sea region about the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ. When we pick up the story here in Acts 27, he's being incarcerated in a jail held in a Roman garrison in Caesarea Philippi, a town that you can still visit today in modern-day Israel. And he's uh, been falsely accused by his rivals of certain crimes. Now, in our court system, we can go to a district court. And if things don't go our way there, we can appeal to an appellate court. And if we want to go for the nuclear option, we can go to the Supreme Court. Well, Paul has gone for the nuclear option. He says, I have appealed to Caesar. And so they say, great, we're going to have to send you all the way from uh, modern-day Israel to modern-day Italy. And so Paul boards a ship. And that's where we pick up the story here in Acts chapter 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion, Roman military officer named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Andromidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. We think of Far East Asia. Asia in that time was modern-day Turkey. We put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed in Sidon, and Julius, the commander, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go see his friends that they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again, past the Lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. When we'd sailed across the open sea off the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian, a North African ship, sailing for Italy and put us on board. We had made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sidonis. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmone. And moving along the coast with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lacia. Now, let's kind of look at the cast of characters here. We've got Paul and other prisoners. We've got Julius, a Roman centurion, and Roman officers under his command. And then we've got an Alexandrian ship and crew and commander. So we've got three different continents of people who are represented on this boat. Europe, Asia, and Africa. And the course that they're following is kind of going up the edge of the east of the Mediterranean. So they're starting in Israel, they go up to Lebanon, they kind of wrap around to Turkey, and then they drop down to the island of Crete. When they get there, much time had been lost. And sailing had already become dangerous because by now, it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter and the majority decided that we should sail on, 
hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This is a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor, sailed off the shore of Crete, and before long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. So Paul intervenes. He goes, hey, just so you guys know, um, you can do whatever you want. I know I don't get a vote. This is going to end badly. The reason that you have this boat is so you can ship cargo and make money. Um, You're going to lose it all. But the centurion has other objectives. He needs to get prisoners to Rome. The pilot and the captain, they need to make money. They want, they want to keep moving. So they're just going to sail a short distance. They're going to move from one side of the island to the other side of the island so that they can winter there. But the wheels come off. And you'll notice that they, when they make a decision, there is a gentle wind. And just a few days later, it's turned into hurricane force. Have you ever like made decisions that seemed like wise decisions when everything was calm? And two weeks later, you go, that was a horrible idea. That's exactly what's happening here. And you'll see what happens here in verse 15. It says, the ship was caught by the storm and we couldn't fight it anymore. We couldn't sail into the wind. So we just surrendered to it and we're driven along. Sometimes when crisis hits, our plans go out the window. Like sometimes at the beginning of a crisis, you're like, oh, I can stay ahead of this. I can manage this. I can stay on top of this. And then it evolves and grows and grows and snowballs. And you're like, I've got nothing. I'm just going to have to try to bolt everything to the deck that I can, cross my fingers and ride this out. We pick up again in verse 16. As we passed the lee of a small island called Kauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid we would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent beating from the storm that the next day they began to throw cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. So they went from crisis management to total despair. Like there's, there's nothing left that we can do here. We're all, all going to die. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have been spared this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Here's what I'm learning about crisis. Sometimes, sometimes the storm is a result of my own choices. Sometimes I end up in crises that aren't anybody's fault but mine. I made reckless decisions. I made lazy decisions. I failed to make any decisions at all. And when the crisis finally comes, my fingerprints are all over that. When I was in student ministry, I remember we were having prayer time with our small group of high school men one night, and there was a kid by the name of Nathan. I go, hey, what's your prayer request? He goes, hey, I got traffic court on Thursday. Pray that I don't get a ticket. And I go, for what? He goes, for speeding. I go, were you speeding? He goes, well, yeah, I just don't want to pay money for it. I go, I'm not praying for that at all. Like, this is called the circle of life. This is called cause and effect. God wants you to learn something from your $200 fine. I'm not praying that you get out of that one. Sometimes the storm, the crisis of our own choosing, sometimes the storm isn't my fault at all. Sometimes the storm is somebody else's fault. That's just life. Sometimes the storm is nobody's fault at all. Sometimes we cannot control how we got to where we are. We only have to decide what we're going to do next. And what I love about the Apostle Paul is he just says with crystal clarity, look, the ship is going to sink. You're going to lose your ship. 
Somebody once said a leader's job is to define reality. That's exactly what Paul is doing here in this moment. He goes, the good news is we're all going to make it out of this alive. The bad news is the ship is going to sink. And I don't know about you, but have you ever noticed that in some crises, when somebody just tells you the hard truth and you finally have the courage to accept it, you're ready to take the next step. When I was 14 years old, I borrowed my sister's bike to go to football practice. And because I didn't understand the rules of the road as well as I did now, I was cutting across a four-lane street to kind of cut through the back parking lot of a grocery store because the high school is on the other side. And as I was crossing this busy street, I saw a truck coming out of the corner of my eye. It had its turn signal on. I said, I'm good. He's going to turn into this parking lot. I'll just let him shield me and we'll keep going. Well, the problem was is he had his blinker on because he was changing lanes and he just kept coming. And I, I saw the grill of this truck rapidly approaching. I heard the, I heard the light, I heard the, the, the brakes and the horn. I saw the lights getting closer. And there's this moment of clarity, almost peace that said, this is it, I'm going to get hit by this truck. And sure enough, by the grace of God, he just made contact with the back tire. I kind of popped up into the air. I broke my tailbone, my elbow, needed 12 stitches in my head, but I survived. And if you've ever been in a car crash, sometimes you know that there's that moment where you say, okay, this is it, this is gonna happen. Like I stopped wishing that it's not gonna happen. I know that it is, and now I can... I can receive it. Here's what Paul doesn't do. Paul does not go into a tantrum. Paul doesn't point fingers. He doesn't lose it with Julius or the pilot or the manager. Why? Because the first lesson in surviving the space between the, between the crisis and the calm is that we bury the blame. We take that temptation to blame the people around us. We put it in the ground. We throw dirt on it and we walk away. Often when panic sets in, we we don't know what to do. And the only thing that we can do is yell and scream and cry and point fingers. Uh, It's a psychological band-aid. It feels like I'm doing something. The problem is that something, blaming, yelling, isn't helping anybody, including myself. Now, there tend to be three blame buckets that we put stuff in. One, depending on our family of origin, maybe you came from a high-performing family. And if anything ever went wrong, it was always your fault. Like you could have, you should have, you should have tried harder. You should have done better. So some of us, we say, we put the blame all squarely on our own shoulders and we don't give ourselves any grace. We say, if something went wrong, it had to have been my fault. And we end up drowning in a sea of guilt. Others of us, um, maybe we grew up in an environment where we were kind of coddled and protected and overly affirmed. And if ever anything went wrong in our family, it was somebody else's fault. So when we blame somebody, we always blame somebody else. Or maybe you're kind of secure enough where you don't blame yourself for everything and you're self-aware enough that you don't blame everybody else for everything, but you're in a part in your spiritual journey where if something went wrong, it has to be God's fault. And you end up shaking your fist at the sky. What's at the root of all three of these blame tactics? Pride. Pride is at the foundation of every form of blame. Because if it's my fault, I'm the center of the universe. Everything hinges on me and my choices. If it's your fault, I know better than you. You've stepped in my way. You need to, you need to change. And if it's God's fault, it's my pride because it, because it reveals the fact that I think that I know better than the divine, that I'm smarter than the creator of the universe. I know how things in my life should unfold. So when we keep kind of feeding blame, all we're doing is allowing our pride to expand. And it's not helpful. Why? Because blame always pulls our focus down and back. When in reality, in the middle of a crisis, what does God want to do? He wants to pull our eyes up and forward. 
to say, I can't change how we got here now. Lord, what do you have in this moment and what's my next step? Rather than I'm going to waste all of my emotional and precious mental energy being frustrated about people and events that I can no longer influence. Now, some of you say, well, you don't understand what's been done to me. You don't understand what they did. Well, you're right, I, I don't. But look at how Paul responds here. In verse, verse 21 and 22, make no mistake, he very clearly says, you should have taken my advice. If you would have, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. But Paul doesn't do this to shame them. This is not Paul grandstanding. This is not his glorious, I told you so moment. What Paul is saying is, I gave you advice, you rejected it, look where we are. Are you ready to trust me now? It's like that old like, Verizon commercial. This is Paul saying, can you hear me now? And my, my, my belief is that now that their lives are on the line, everybody is listening to Paul in ways that they were not listening to him before. If we wanna move forward, from where we are to where we're going, we need, to, we need to bury the blame and resist the temptation to yell, scream, cry, and point fingers. Paul builds his case. Verse 23, he says, last night, an angel of the God whom I belong to. Why? Because everybody else has their own gods. There's Roman gods, there's Egyptian gods, there's other Eastern gods that are being celebrated on this boat. Paul goes, I have a God uh, who's pretty smart. And his angel told me this, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Paul goes, there, God has a reason for us to get to Italy, and we're going to get there. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me to. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed that we were approaching land. They took soundings. They checked the depth and found that the water was 120 feet deep. Short time later, they took soundings and found that it was 90 feet deep. We're getting, it's getting shallow. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you can't be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And after he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. Listen to how Paul navigates his conflict. He goes, um, have a snack. Don't be scared, brace for impact. Paul's guide to surviving a shipwreck. Like, it's, it's very simple. It's very basic. I love how orderly he is. But after his, the first lesson that Paul teaches us is that you bury the blame. The next lesson that he teaches us is that you uh, bless the bread. You bless the bread. Listen to what he says here. Verse 33, he goes, you've been under constant stress and haven't eaten for 14 days. Have you ever been under so much stress that you couldn't eat? No, very rarely. Uh, I, I, I can't go for 14 minutes without eating. These guys went for 14 days. He goes, I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. That is the physiological understatement of the New Testament. If you don't eat, you're going to die. Yes, that is true. And then it says that he took bread and gave thanks in front of them all. Paul does a public breaking of the bread. He's like not in his cabin saying like, hey, Lord, thanks for breakfast. No, he does this in front of the whole crew, 275 other individuals. Now, this is not just a chance to ingest much needed calorie. They're not carbo-loading for a potential swim to shore. Paul is leading them in a communal meal. He's modeling gratitude when it's not convenient. Paul's saying, if we were on shore, 
We were safe and secure, and it was Shabbat. Would we break bread, thank God for it, and eat it? Yes. So why would we, just because we're in the middle of this crazy chaos, why would we not do the thing that points us to God that we would do when everything is going great? Have you noticed that when you're in a crisis, like the first thing to go is like normal, healthy patterns of survival. You don't eat well, you don't sleep well, you're not getting exercise. And then the spiritual disciplines that sustain you in peacetime tend to go out the window in war. So we're not spending time in the word, we're not reflecting, we're not having times of solitude, we're not having times of celebration. Why? Because all of our energy has gone into panic mode. It's all gone into kind of survival capacity, survival gear. And Paul goes, that's all right. He goes, we're going to pause in the middle of this 14-day nightmare and thank God for being good to us. I don't care if you don't have an appetite. The fact that you have bread at all is evidence of God's goodness to you. Let's give thanks. When my father turned 80 this last fall, he got all of uh, kind of the, the uh, six children and the in-laws and all of the grandkids together. And I, he told us this one lesson. He goes, when I was young in my faith, somebody told me that the hallmark of spiritual, uh, spiritual maturity was ongoing gratitude. Because you know that somebody walks with God when they're thankful regardless of the circumstances. It's about a month and a half ago, I'm a part of a small group that's trying to incorporate some spiritual formation disciplines into our lives. And every month there's like a new tool that they kind of put in our kit to try. And the challenge for the month of April was this gratitude experiment. He said, every day we want you to thank God for 10 different things in what you thanked him for yesterday. And so there'll be times where I could just, I'll just rattle off my list of 10. But if it's a bad day or if it's a bad week, I'll get to three and then I'm stuck. And I could almost see God going like, really, Steve, really, three, that's it? Like, you're, you're like that blinded to my vast and overarching goodness for you. But I tell you that on the days that I do it, which has been more often than not, I've been able to just start my day with a sense of calm, with a sense of peace, with a sense of saying, you know what, there might be four things in my life that are going wrong that I can't control. There are 47 that are worth celebrating, that every day where I roll out of bed and can, can be vertical or draw a breath or open my eyes, that's a gift of God. Why, why would I take that for granted? So the question that I have to ask you in the middle of your crisis, in the middle of your nightmare, in the middle of your storm is, do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that his love endures forever? Like we just finished singing. Because if you did, then write it down. List the ways that he loves you. List the ways that you know that he has been good to you and then read that list and then read it again and say, God, I'm frustrated about X, but I'm grateful for A through V because you're still good. You're still good to me in more ways than I can keep track of than I understand. I had a friend, Joyce, who was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer a few years ago and she said that she had a nurse who said, okay, you get 15 minutes of the beginning of every day to complain. She goes, and you can, you can scream, you can throw stuff, you can be mad at me, you can be mad at everybody else. She goes, but when that clock hits 1500, you're done. And then we're gonna roll up our sleeves, we're gonna work our plan, we're gonna do the chemo, we're gonna get back to work, and we're gonna thank God for the day that we have. And I love it, because it wasn't denial, it was saying, yeah, I am in a hard season. It's frustrating, I need to vent, I need to emote, I need to get that out. When I'm done, I'm centering myself back in the moment God has me in. I'm planting my feet firmly in his promises and I'm turning my heart towards his. I know the season that you're in is difficult. I know there are some things that don't make sense. I know the temptation 
to blame and complain. But I want you to say, God, you have given me much. Will you remind me of your goodness again? Because God has been faithful to you in crises past. He'll be faithful to you in crises present. Let's look again, verse 36. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. So they eat and they throw the leftovers overboard. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail into the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out the plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. And here's the verse that I want you to catch. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. So first lesson, bury the blame. Second lesson, bless the bread. Third lesson, believe the best. Paul believed that God had a mission for him and that was to get to Italy. Paul didn't know that God had a detour for him that was critically important. Paul had no idea that God wanted him to get to Malta. But in spite of all of this life-threatening experience, Paul never stopped believing that God had a plan, that God had a purpose, that God had an intention for bringing him down the road that he had been down. And now we know why. Because God wanted Paul to get to Malta. Why did God want Paul to get to Malta? Because there were people in this tiny island that was just off of the southern shore of Italy, and every person on that island mattered to God. And as far as we know, none of them had heard about the life-transforming message of Jesus Christ before. And there's a chance that if God did not wreck this ship on this beach, those islanders would not have heard the gospel in their lifetime. So then the question that we have to ask is this. Was God allowing Paul to go through 14 days of hell on earth so that he could give a gift to the people of Malta? I have a friend named Tracy and I was asking her about her, her lineage and she let me know that her ancestry is actually Maltese. She could, in theory, trace her spiritual heritage back to this storm, back to Paul's crisis, back to the shipwreck. She could say that she is now a believer, a follower, and she could say she's a follower of Christ because they could trace their spiritual ancestry back to this moment, 2,000 years. Now, Paul was no stranger to like being on the brink of death. He's been beaten with rods. He's been arrested. He's been tortured. He's been imprisoned. He's been stoned with rocks and left for dead. Paul is so all in with the person of Jesus, so fiercely committed to the gospel that he doesn't care if he lives or dies. He just wants that moment, whatever it is, to push kingdom forward. And so God, because he knew that Paul had this appetite to go wherever it is that God needed him to be, might have said, you know what, Paul? Um, these are not an ideal set of circumstances. It's going to be a rough and rocky road that I get you there, but I've got a mission for you. I need you to get to Malta because there's people there who haven't yet heard my heart, and I'm going to use this experience to get you there. 
I don't know about you, but when I'm going through a crisis, all I'm thinking about is me, my comfort or my lack thereof, and how quickly I want it to stop. I've never kind of hit pause and said, God, is there something that you want to give to somebody else as a result of pulling me through this experience? One writer says, you never know when you will be the answer to somebody else's prayer. You never know when you're going to be the answer to somebody else's prayer. And I run into people all the time who get very serious um, diagnoses of illnesses. And we pray with those people for miracles all the time. And some of those people get miracles. Others, others don't. Some succumb to their illnesses. But as they do that, they live a life of faithfulness and patience and peace. And I would argue that in many cases, sometimes God gets more glory when somebody suffers well than he does when they're miraculously delivered. Because everybody's watching them in the long haul to say, how are they responding? What do they believe to be true about God? Are they going to give up on him when the waters get tumultuous? Acts chapter 28. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta, and the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, because though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. That's an awkward moment. Like, you're Paul, you survive a shipwreck, and then you get bit by a venomous snake. You're like, really, Lord? Is this how we're going to do this? Like, the day is going to end like this. I survive a hurricane. I'm going to die of a snake bite. Well, everybody who's watching, they know the terrain. They know that's a venomous snake. They've been teaching their children to avoid that snake ever since they were born. And Paul gets bitten, and what does it say? It says, people sit around, watch, waiting for him to die. Like, hey, what are you guys doing? Well, we're just waiting for you to pass out, man. We thought this would be a good show. YouTube wasn't invented yet, by the way. So... Everybody's just like, this is going to be great. We're going to watch a guy die today. And when he doesn't, everybody's like, oh, that was weird. Um, his God must be with him and for him. So Paul gets the attention of the crew when the storm that he predicted arrives. Paul gets the attention of the islander when God allows him to miraculously survive a snake bite. What is God doing? God is continuing to engineer circumstances to give Paul's message maximum credibility whenever he opens his mouth. And sometimes your surviving, the storm that God has you in, is going to give you credibility to other people who are in similar storms. If you or somebody that you love has ever been through the process of recovery, you know that the latter steps of recovery aren't that we just thank God for delivering us from our hurt, habit, hang-up, or addiction. We actually kind of go back to the beginning of the cycle and we find somebody who's struggling in a way that we were struggling and we give our lessons back to them. But if only if we have walked the path that they're on, do they trust us? Only then do we have the credibility to speak into their story in a way that is legitimate. My first instinct in a crisis is to say, God, what are you doing to me? And maybe a better question is, God, what do you want to do around me and through me to people I haven't even met yet? Verse 7 says this, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius the chief official of the land. He welcomed us into his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed and suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. 
And when this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies that we needed. Paul does what? Paul goes into the island. He helps do a common task like build a fire. He survives the snake bite and he immediately does what? He immediately gets back to the work of kingdom. One of the ways that Jesus always announced kingdom was with physical healing. And so Paul just starts healing people. I don't know about you, if I have been on a ship for 14 days in the middle of a storm where I wasn't eating and I got bit by a snake, I think I, think I would be entitled to a sabbatical. Like, I think at that point, Paul would say, I'm gonna get to y'all later. I'm gonna have a massage. Like, I'm gonna take a nap for about three weeks. He doesn't do that. He, Paul, why? Because Paul doesn't have that gear. Paul says, oh, wait, there are people who haven't heard about Jesus. Oh, wait, there are people who are sick and I have the life-transforming ability of the gospel to speak into their hurt and their woundedness. Let's get to work. And when that ship leaves port, what, is, what has been left in Malta? A church, a small body of believers that God created out of a nightmare experience that Paul and 276 of his friends had to go through. Now, here, at the beginning, we said, where are the crew from? Crews from three different continents. When that mission was over, where did they go? Well, invariably, they all went home. And what did they go home with? They went home with a story. And there are people in North Africa and there are people back in Israel and there are people, Roman military officers and their families in Rome who did what? They had conversations about Jesus that they never would have had before. Why? Because God allowed Paul to go through a storm. And some of you say, I hate being here and I want to get out. And God says, um, I'm not punishing you. There's a gift for somebody that you haven't met yet in this story. Hold fast. Stay true. Bury the blame. Bless the bread. Believe the best. Believe that in the big picture scheme, God is doing something that you haven't even begun to imagine. And hold fast. God tells the crew, hey, you're gonna lose your boat. You're gonna lose your boat. Uh, what's your boat? What's the one thing that you have been hanging on to for your security? for your identity, for your pleasure. And maybe even inadvertently, you've put more of your energy into that than you have into your relationship with your redeemer and king. Is it possible that God will break up your boat as an act of mercy? That God is using this current crisis to knock away a crutch or a scaffold that you have been leaning on unnecessarily. Because Jesus had a moment where God let him know that he was gonna break up the boat. We find it in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 39. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful, troubled. Then he said to them, my soul's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here, keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Why is Jesus praying that prayer? Because God has already revealed to him what needs to happen. God the Father has already relayed to Jesus, um, the boat is gonna break up. And in this case, the boat is what? It's his very body. God the Father says to the Son, We're, I, you're, gonna lose, you're gonna lose your very life. But I'm going to redeem even that horror 
for my glory and the good of the world. And when Jesus Christ, the very next day, hangs on a Roman cross, an instrument of shame, torture, and death, what does God do in that moment? God takes your crimes against heaven and my offenses against God, the people that I love and perfect strangers, and he nails them to the cross with the sun. And when Jesus rises from the grave, he announces that he has power over sin, death, and hell forever. And God redeems Christ's nightmare for our redemption. The resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ declares his victory over all things. And my prayer for us is that we wouldn't, we wouldn't wait for life to get kind of smooth as glass. We wouldn't wait for the waters to be still to declare his victory. We would declare his victory in the middle of the storm. We would declare his victory when life is hard, when things are difficult, but we know his faithfulness is not diminished. And so uh, my one application for you, if you haven't signed up for the Global Leadership Summit, you can do that in the lobby. Otherwise, I just want to pray a word of blessing over you. My brothers and sisters of Central Wesleyan Church, may God show grace to you in breaking up the boats that need to be broken. May God be faithful in allowing your wounds to lead to healing for those around you. And may God lead you safely to the beach where you can proclaim the riches of his wonder to those who have not yet heard. Amen and amen. Go safe, be well. We'll catch you next week. Thank you so much.